0: Romans chapter nine, I'm gonna read the whole section. I looked at breaking this down, but as you will soon see, to fully study it properly, you have to look at this chapter in its full context. Too many people have taken, well, look at what it says here in these verses, but they don't take the whole context. Listen to the whole context of Romans nine. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son." For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist? His will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called the sons of the living God. Now, you have to see there is a lot here and there's some really tricky stuff that we're going to take some time using the whole of scripture to interpret. As Paul has just had his glorious climax of praise of God for his love for the church, you say, what are we talking about? Well, remember when we were together last time, six weeks ago, (laughs) we finished Romans chapter eight. Remember Romans eight, where it talks about how uh, the love of God will never leave us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And if he who did not spare his own son, how will he not will also graciously give us all things? And he talks about those he's predestined to be conformed into the image of his son and all this stuff. He's just finished this wonderful praise of God's wonderful gift of salvation that he has given to the church. And his thoughts immediately go to his people, the Jews. And he says, what about all of God's promises to Israel? He starts thinking about God's promises to Israel. If you remember, God promised that not only the Messiah would come through them, but he would also give them that land forever and that he would do all these things and that the Messiah would come and rule and reign there in Jerusalem and there are all these promises. But now God's doing this amazing new thing of the church. And his heart still yearns for Israel. We're gonna look at that in a little more detail in just a second. So I want you to understand, in order to understand what Paul's dealing with in chapter 9, we won't do it tonight, but you're going to see over the next many weeks, he answers a lot of these questions in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. As he gets to the end of chapter 11, he comes to the conclusion from Scripture that God's not done with the nation of Israel. He's going to finish all of those promises to Israel. Go with me real quick to Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 11 through 16. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. Paul says, So I ask, did they, meaning the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass... Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You got to put a bookmark here, put a finger here, put a bookmark here, stop real quick. We'll finish this section in a little bit. But I need you to go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We won't have time tonight to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read one verse to you, verse 21. But if you go back and look later on at Deuteronomy chapter 32, you'll see that God lays out for the nation of Israel as they're entering the promised land. He lays out their whole history. You're going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. Then you're going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. And he goes through their whole history, and then he tells them something in verse 21, and this is what Paul's quoting from. In verse 21 of Deuteronomy 32, God says, They have made, the Jews have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And Paul says he's saving Gentiles now to make Israel jealous. They made me jealous by worshiping gods that aren't gods. I'm going to take a people they don't consider a people, and I'm going to make them jealous. By the way, if you talked back then to a devout Jew who believed that they were the only God's only people, and you were to ask him, well, why did God make the Gentiles? They would tell you there's two reasons why he made the Gentiles. Somebody's got to go to hell, and we need servants, Seriously, they did not consider the, Jew, the Gentiles a people. They thought it would you'd make you unclean if you even went into their house. And when some of their Jewish people, when the captivity of Babylon happened, when they intermarried with the Babylonians, and then when they were set free, they had made baby, mom, mom would be Jew and dad would be a Babylonian, and they'd make babies that were what they were considered half-breeds. They wouldn't even let them live in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. They, they had to live up in Samaria, and they wouldn't even go through Samaria. And God says, I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people, and I'm going to make you jealous, Israel. And that's what Paul's talking about. Go back to Romans chapter 11. Look at again, verses 11 through 16. So I ask, did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So in this section, he says, no, God's not done with national Israel. They've fallen. They've been set aside and part, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But I want to also to notice a couple of things that will help us as we start to break down this whole election thing. As we read chapter 9, it sure looked like God determines who's going to heaven and who's not. It reads that way, and you can try to make it say that. But if you use the whole of Scripture, you'll see some things in here. Well, look again at what it says here. He says in verse 13, if their rejection means reconciliation well why were they rejected we'll jump up to verse 12 if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the gentile how much more will their full inclusion mean so if the jews failed did they have a choice yes yeah they had a choice because they failed if they had no choice they couldn't fail on top of that, Paul then goes and says, I'm actually, because he's going to use the Gentiles and the church to make Israel jealous, I'm going to make my, magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. And so hopefully some more Jews will come to faith because of that. Well, listen, if God's already predetermined who's in and who's out and man has no say, why is Paul taking the effort to hopefully have some Jews come to faith if it's already been predetermined? Yet at the same time as you're going to see tonight and next week, we can't just go, man can choose whenever he wants. God controls all of it. And this is why it gets hard for some of us because there are some verses that sure look one side of the ditch and then there are other verses that clearly look the other side of the ditch. And I'm going to show you when we use the Holy Scripture that they're both there. But how they come together, we may not fully, never fully understand, but I'll hopefully to have you by the end out of the ditches. But Paul, look at what he says in chapter 11, verses 25 through 32 lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And better, we already read earlier in chapter 9 how he said, even though they're the, they'll be as numerous as the sand in the sea, only a few of them will be saved. So how is all Israel going to be saved if only a few of them are going to be saved. If you put the whole of Scripture together, you'll see this, that the Jews that survived the tribulation period, all of those, every one of them will be saved. That's why back in Jeremiah, God says at that time when he saves the nation of Israel, when Jesus comes back and the Jews that survived the tribulation, two thirds of them are going to be killed. But when the one third is spared, when, they're, when Jesus comes back, he's going to save them all. And not only that, he says, you won't need anybody saying know the Lord. They'll all know the Lord. The Jews will. So that's why you got to use the whole of scripture. Even though their number is as numerous as the sand in the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Yet Paul says here at the end of the tribulation period, all Israel that survives will be saved. And then look what he says in verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel... The Jews are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, there's that word again, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on who? All. All. Again, you're going to see, and let me just give you a synopsis, and I'll lay it all out over tonight and next week in great detail. The scripture says that everybody has a chance to be saved, but not everybody has the same amount of chance to be saved. God gets to do it however he wants. Let me ask you a quick question. Show of hands, how many of you had a blinding light, and audible voice knock you off your horse when you got saved, just like Paul? No? Actually, the Bible says Jesus stood over Capernaum and he said, if uh, the miracles that were done in you, Capernaum, were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Well, God, then why didn't you do that stuff in there? Because I chose not to. But I gave them enough to believe and they'll be judged according to how much they had revealed to them. And those who have had more revealed to them will have a stricter judgment. Folks, this salvation thing is God's plan and we can't hijack it. He gets to do it however he wants, but don't jump into this ditch and think that you have no responsibility. Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he wept and he said to the Jews, if you only would have let me, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. So is God sovereign? Yep. Does man have a choice? Yep. Well, if man has a choice, God's not sovereign. I actually believe God's more sovereign than the sovereignty people. I think God can be totally in control and still give you a choice. I think he's even more sovereign than the sovereignty people think. But again, the whole of scripture, tonight you'll see a little bit of it. Next week, we'll lay it all out. I'm going to be bombing you with scriptures you've never even used to look at this argument. All right? So, but Paul's question is, as his heart goes back to the Jews, remember, he's just finished chapter 8 and this awesome thing that he's done to save the church and how he'll never leave us nor forsake us and, and nothing will separate us from his love, but he still hurts for the Jews, his people. What about God's promises? And he says, it's not as though God's promises have failed. God's not done with Israel. We'll see that more when we get to chapter 11. We're going to lay that out in a lot more detail then. But in order to get there, Paul first lays out the scriptural depth of God's sovereignty to do things however he wishes, and at the same time shows that God's sovereignty doesn't remove man's free will. This will also be shown over the next three chapters. Again, God has the sovereignty to do things however he wants, and his sovereignty does not remove your responsibility. You still get a choice. Now, Paul starts off chapter 9. Go back to chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. He starts telling the Roman church of his deep love and concern for his own people, the Jews. Listen to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 again. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Don't miss how Paul starts this chapter off. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to say to you is going to sound so crazy, I have to tell you three times before I say it, I'm not only telling you the truth, God is confirming that this is the truth in my heart. He knows my heart. And then what's the next crazy thing he says? He says, if I could be cut off from Christ, and that would cause the nation of Israel to be saved, I'd do it. If I were to go to hell and my going to hell would cause Israel to be saved, I'd do it. That's how much I want my people to be saved. Now, folks, I got to talk to you real quick about that. Because we have a tendency sometimes in the church to lose sight of God's heart for the lost. Jesus... Not only said We only have it recorded that it reads like he said it once, but actually in the Greek, he probably was saying it over and over during the first few hours on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While he was being laid on the cross and they were nailing his hands, most likely, because it reads that way in the Greek, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they nailed his other hand, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they nailed his feet, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he actually had a prayer for all these people people who were hating him and rejecting him and killing him, his heart was, I want them to be saved. Father, forgive them. What did Stephen say when he was being stoned? Father, don't hold this sin against them. Now, when you get to the tribulation period, you'll see a big difference after the church age because it's a time of God's wrath. And during the tribulation period, those saints that are being killed during the tribulation, we see their souls under the altar and they say, how long till you avenge our blood? There's a different attitude during the tribulation period because it's a time of judgment. But during the church age, our heart should be bleeding with the same heart of Jesus toward the lost and to see them as people who need forgiveness and need salvation. And he says, If I could go to hell and that would cause Israel to be saved, I'd do it. By the way, that's what Jesus did for you and me. He didn't suffer in hell for three days. But while he was on the cross, he experienced hell. He experienced the separation from the Father. Again, he was praying all the time, Father, Father, Father. But yet at one point he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How God can separate himself from himself, I never understand. But he did. He somehow experienced the separation from the Father. And when the time was done and the Father was satisfied, Jesus cried out, it's finished. To tell It's paid in full. And then he says, Father. And to your hands, I commit my spirit. He told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't go suffer in hell for three days and then rise from the dead. It was finished on the cross. But he experienced hell so that you and I could be saved. But as you're going to see, election is not as much about who God determined pre ahead of time to be saved in one way. But it's how God has predetermined people to be saved. And therefore, the who are the people who are willing to respond in the manner in which he has predetermined. That's why he's showing us this all the way through. That's why when he chose Jacob over Esau, before they had done anything, he was just simply saying, it's not cho- tied to what you do. This plan is all tied to what I've predetermined ahead of time. And it has nothing to do with how much you effort you put into it, or how good you are. And oh, by the way, as you're going to see, as we touch on it tonight, deal with it a lot more next week. His plan before the foundation of the world was that the only way we can be saved is through faith alone in his provision for our sin. And that's it. And as much as chapter nine sure read like God's already chosen who's going and who doesn't. and He can do it however he wants. If you remember the very last section of chapter nine, why did the Jews not get in? because of unbelief because they didn't respond in the way that God had predetermined ahead of time there's only one way in which you can be saved folks oh we live in a world where people say I think there's many ways to God that's not what God's plan is his plan is that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved Acts chapter 4 verse 12 Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life John 14 verse 6 no one comes to the father except through me did you catch that The only way to God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that's it. And that's God's plan from the beginning, and he gets to do it however he wants, and he's determined that he is the one who opens your eyes to the truth. You must respond. He doesn't give everybody the same amount, but he gets to do it however he wants, but everybody hears in some fashion, shape, or form. And the only way you can be one of the chosen is to drink of Jesus Remember the story of Gideon, how Gideon was asked by God to go defeat the Midianites and he gathered 32,000 and God said, you got too many, knocked it down to 10,000. He says, you still got too many. And he lets them go down to the water and drink. And this is what God says. He says, the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Do you remember? God had already predetermined that those who drink in a certain way are the ones he's chosen. Did everybody have a choice in how they drank? Sure. But the ones who drank in the way that he had predetermined are the ones he's chosen. God has already said, before the foundation of the world, I've already set my plan. My purpose of election is that it's all done by me. It's my plan, and you have to submit to my plan. And those who drink in this way, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, those are the ones I've chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen? Those who are willing to humble themselves like children and come to him in faith and surrender to his plan. And the only way is through faith in Jesus Christ. You wanna add anything to it? You're not chosen. You didn't drink in the manner that he's predetermined. You wanna try and get your own way in? You're not gonna get there. You've stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is Jesus. And all the Jews, Paul says, had all of this revealed to him. It was all pointing to Jesus. They were the chosen people, their adoption by God. They saw God's Shekinah glory. He made covenants with them. He gave them his law from Mount Sinai. They were given rites and worship of God in the temple. God made so many promises to them, the greatest one being that the Messiah would come through them, the one who would bless the world. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 3. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abram when he started this new nation, he took Abram from his people and his land, and he says, Come to a land that I'll show you, and I'm going to start a whole new nation with you. Now, interestingly enough, at this time, he and his wife Sarah had, or Sarai at the time, hadn't had any children. But look at what he says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a picture of, he's talking about Jesus. Through the nation of Israel, which came from Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel through the Jews. His plan of the Messiah, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, the thing that makes everybody mad. Isn't it interesting how, if I play a lot of golf, and I love golf, but a lot of times I'll be out there in the golf course and someone will say, Jesus Christ, and they're not praying. And a lot of times I'll, I'll jokingly put my head down and they'll say, what are you doing? I'm like, well, it sound like, I thought you were praying. I thought you were saying. But then I've asked a couple of guys this. I said, let me ask you a question. Whether you believe Jesus is God or not is not the issue. But most everybody in the world would agree that probably one of the greatest men who ever lived on this earth was Jesus. Would you not agree? And they're like, yeah. I go, then why do we use his name when we wanna cuss? Why don't we say Hitler? Why don't we say Mussolini? And they go, what are you, a preacher? I don't usually tell people that I'm playing with that I'm a preacher unless they're beating me. Then I might let that slip out. But they also had the patriarchs. You all know who the patriarchs are, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember back we read earlier tonight in Romans 11 that God is going to finish all the things he promised the nation of Israel because of his promises to the patriarchs? By the way, folks, that's another scriptural evidence of the fact that Jesus has to literally come back to this earth and set up his kingdom. He's going to do it for a thousand years and it's going to be centered in Israel because he promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob another study for another time. I don't have time to take you back, but I could show you where God says to them more than once. I'm going to give to you, Abraham, this and your descendants, this land. Isaac, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. Jacob, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever receive the land? No. It wasn't until the time of Moses and Joshua that they actually were brought into the promised land. And when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived on it for a period of time, they were like strangers and sojourners living in tents. When Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies, he had to purchase a piece of property in order to bury her. The land hadn't been given to him yet, but God already promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he's going to do it, folks. That's because one day, all the promises for Israel are going to be fulfilled, and they're going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back to this earth. He's going to set up his kingdom on the earth through Israel, and the world will be blessed and has been blessed through Jesus Christ. They also had, like we've already pointed to, Jesus who was in his God himself, but in his flesh. What nationality was Jesus? He was a Jew. So Paul says they had all of this. They had all this revealed to them. Yet they tried to earn God's approval they didn't understand the law was showing them they couldn't keep it. They didn't understand the holy rites and sacrificial things were pointing to the fact that there was going to need to be blood to take away sin. And the fact that the Hebrew writer says that it was offered every year should have been a clue. This isn't working. But then once for all, the one that had been prophesied, all through the scriptures, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God tells Satan when Adam and Eve sin, a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman is going to crush you. That was the first preaching of the gospel in the whole Bible, Genesis three fifteen, And as you look at the scriptures all the way through, little by little, progressive revelation, God gives a little bit more and a little bit more. All of a sudden, we see that he's going to come through Abraham and the nation of Israel. Oh, we then see he's also going to come through Isaac and not Ishmael, but Isaac. He's also going to come through the line of David. And he's also going to be God himself. Because remember the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next part? Almighty God. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 11. A a shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to bring forth. And a branch is going to come from him. And that branch is going to have the Spirit of God upon him. The seven spirits of God. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. And he's going to come and rule uh, on the earth through his people of Israel and shepherd them. Folks... Little by little, the scripture kept talking. Isaiah, the spirit of God through Isaiah says that he's going to come and he's going to suffer. And all the sins of the world are going to be heaped on him. And he's going to be beaten for our transgressions and put to death for our sins. Oh, but listen, after the suffering of his soul, he will see his offspring and be satisfied. Why? Because he's going to rise from the dead after he pays for the sins of the world. All along, all along, the scriptures were pointing to him. And the Jews had way more revelation than all everybody else. But they missed it because they thought they had to do something in order to be right with God. And what's the only thing he's wanting from us? Faith. And his provision for our sins. And how do we walk by daily now as Christians? By faith. God, you started this good work. And you, your word says you're the author and the perfecter of this faith. You who began this good work are going to finish it. It's you who establishes me in every good work and word. It's you who will direct my hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. And too many Christians have been taught, now that you've been saved, go work for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to just walk with me and trust me and just do what I ask you to do, believing that I'm going to make it work. Go to Romans chapter 9. Look at verses 6 through 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring genetically. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is after he had already tried with Hagar to make a baby and they made Ishmael. After that, he says, no, 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 I'm not talking about him. And this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. That's the one. That's the the child of the promise that I've been talking about. So... I'm just going to tell you now, this is where Paul's teaching in chapter 9 gets deep, and it's going to get deep in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. The answer to the question of the effectiveness or truth of God's word, his promises to Israel, has many levels. I'm going to deal with two tonight. The first one is this. No, God's promise to Israel has not failed because, one, God's Israel is made up of more than just physical descendants of Israel. Do you all realize That because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been grafted in to the people of Israel? Actually, we are joint heirs of all the promises for Israel. Again, because of time, I'm not going to take you to all of that. But the scriptures talk about the fact that when God saved us, all the promises for Israel are ours now. Oh, by the way, God promised Israel that in the very last days, when he comes back and forgives their sin, you go back and look at Ezekiel chapter think it's chapter 36, verse 22, or it's 22, verse 36. Let me find it real quick. Go, go real quick to Ezekiel. Yeah. Look at chapter 36. Yep, I was right the first time. Chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, who, th- when through you, through the Jews, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, the nations are going to know that it's me. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I'll cleanse you and I will give you a new spirit, sorry, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you catch that? God says, when I come and fulfill all of my promises to you, I'm gonna erase all your sin, I'm gonna wash you clean and put my spirit within you and make you obey me and cause you to obey my commandments. By the way, that's yours and mine now through faith in Jesus. It's gonna to happen to the nation of Israel one day when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, but the promises for Israel are ours now. Not everybody who's a physical, genetic descendant of Abraham is called Israel. You and I are part of Israel. This is why some Christians and a lot of church denominations teach that the church has replaced Israel. Israel. God's doing salvation now. Not all, that's what they quote from Romans 9. Not all who are of Israel are Israel, but those who are of faith. So God's done with Israel, they say, the nation of Israel. He's now saving the church, and that's his work. Because Israel blew it and he rejected them. And now, no, 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 they've experienced the hardening in part. Until he's done with this thing he's doing to make Israel jealous. But one day he's going to take us back to be with him when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he's going to. Finish with Israel. You see, if the church has replaced Israel, then all the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are were were fulfilled. And God broke a promise, and he can't do that. He can't lie. So has God's promise to Israel failed? No, because we're a part of Israel, and he's doing it now through us. But there's a second part, and we've already talked about it a little bit, not only it hasn't it hasn't failed because God will do for natural and national Israel all that He has promised when He's done what He's doing in this time of the Gentiles. Go back to Romans eleven, look at verses one through six. He says, "I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means." For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them, or to him? He says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So again, he says, is God done with the nation of Israel? No. And just like at the time when it looked like Israel was done and Elijah thought he was the only one that believed, God says, no, there's 7,000 I know who have faith in me. And so too, right now, in the nation of Israel, there's a remnant chosen by grace. What does it mean, chosen by grace? Again, did he have to offer us salvation? No. But his plan before the foundation of the world was that even though we sinned, even though we rejected him, even though we listened to Satan instead of him, he would provide a way for us to be brought back. By the way, the angels didn't get that, did they? You ever thought about the fact that the Bible says in 1 Peter that the angels long to look into this relationship that we have? Do you not know that the Bible also says in Ephesians 3.10 that now through the church, God's manifold wisdom is being revealed to the heavenly authorities, spiritual authorities in the heavenly places? He's doing something right now through saving us by his grace and his gift and his mercy to the angels and the demons who all rebelled. He's got something bigger going on, folks, and we're not going to fully understand it until we get there. And I'm not fully sure we'll ever fully understand it because none of us can be God. But let me tell you this, you want to be a part of it? You stop trying to earn it and just receive it by faith. You stop trying to get better as a Christian and just walk with him and do what he says, trusting that he's going to get you where he said he would. Lord, you said you'd start this work and that you would finish it. Thank you, because I tried and I'm not doing so good. Anybody else pray that prayer or something similar? Boy, my Christian life got so much more fun when I stopped trying to help God. Go to Romans 11, look at verses 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, the Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches... If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember, if the the root is holy, so is the whole thing. Then you will say branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Hang on for a second. I thought it always predetermined. No, they still have a choice. They still have an opportunity. For if you were cut off by what is nature, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these nat- the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Folks, listen to me. My- it, it hurts me when I hear Christians saying that God's done with Israel. There are actually denominations that are pro-Palestine right now. Oh, I'm not kidding. You. Because their theology is, is that the Jews killed the Messiah but we responded in faith and we believe in him. They didn't. We believe. They had all that and they rejected, but we believed. Oh, when you start thinking you had something to do with it, did you catch that? Don't be proud. Don't think you're better than them. Just be thankful that God opened your eyes. And if you did respond, this it's going to get deep next week. If you even have faith, God gave you that too. I'm telling you, If you walk out of here in the next two weeks saying I totally understand it, I failed. (laughs) And in explaining that God's promises for Israel are available to everyone, Paul shows how all along salvation has been offered to anyone who has faith in God's promise, his promised one. Go back to Romans 4. Go back to Romans 4. Look at verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life To the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. By the way, if I were to ask you if you're going to heaven today and you said yes, and your answer is to me, and if I were to say, how do you know? If you were to answer me and say, well, I've been a church member, eh, that's your effort. That's something you've done. Well, oh, I was baptized. That eh, doesn't save you. But I, I oh, no, he made a promise. As one older lady said to me years ago, she said, Jim, I don't fully understand the whole Bible, but I know this much. He said, that if I would believe with all my heart, I'd be saved. And if I could believe any more, I would. But he said it, so I believe him. I said, boy, you're smarter than most of the theologians I know. He said it, and I believe him. When Abraham believed what God had promised, he was given righteousness. Oh, but Keep reading. Look at verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Folks, I can look you in the eye and tell you I'm going to heaven today. And I'm not bragging, I'm just saying thank God. But how do I know? Because God said if I believe in Jesus, I'll be saved and I don't have any hope in anybody else or anything else. I put all my eggs in one basket. God's promise, his promise for his provision for my sin, the one that you can trace all the way back to Genesis 3:15, that's going to be a descendant of the woman that one day would crush Satan. Go to Romans 10, verses 9 through 18. Sorry, Romans 9, verses 10 through 18. Romans 9, verses 10 through 18. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this is a deep section that hopefully we can grasp in a little bit of the time we have left. In choosing beforehand who his Messiah would come through, he was showing that God does not choose according to how a person performs. It's his choice of how to be saved, his grace, his mercy. In other words, he gets all the credit. And in order to show that it's all his plan, he said when these two babies were born, both in the conceived and in the womb before they were born, he says, I've chosen that the older one is going to serve the younger one and through the younger one will my messiah come. Before they even had done anything good or bad to show that his plan, his election, his purposes, it's all by his deciding. And he's predetermined how it all works. And the only thing we can do is submit to it and say, your plan is best. And so Jacob was the one whom the Messiah came through, not Esau. That passage where it talks about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, we hear that word loved and hated and we feel like God didn't like Esau. No, no, no. If you go back to the actual Greek and the Hebrew, it actually is more of a I've chosen to work through this one and not chosen to work through this one. Did he love Esau? Well, yeah, because the Bible says he loves everybody. For God so loved the world. So if God so loved the world, that hated can't mean God didn't love Esau. You understand what I'm saying? We have to be careful that we don't take something out of context of the whole of Scripture and let the whole of Scripture build our theology. All God was showing was My plan has been determined by me ahead of time. It has nothing to do with how good you do. It's my choice, and to prove it, I choose who the Messiah was going to come through all the way down. Oh, and by the way, you want further evidence of the fact that it has nothing to do with how good we are? You go back and look at the lineage of the Messiah, and you're going to see prostitutes. You're going to see murderers, adulterers, most of us would say, oh, no, no, they blew it. No, it has nothing to do with how good or bad you are, whether or not you have faith. That's his plan. God's choice. Then he explains how he demonstrated that with Pharaoh. Now, I don't have time to walk you through this, but it's a fun study if you want to do it on your own. you got to get quiet. you got to get two different color markers. And you go back and look at the story of the, ten, uh, the plagues in Israel. All right. In Egypt, I mean, God tells Moses at the beginning of that passage, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He didn't say I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But if you then start studying it, you'll notice that at the beginning, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Every time he has an opportunity to respond the right way and let the people go, he hardens his own heart. Then about halfway through to 3 quarters of the way through, all of a sudden, you'll see the wording change. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Interestingly enough, he gives Pharaoh one more opportunity after he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh blew that one and from that point on and the rest of the whole story, every time it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So at the beginning, God says, I already know how it's all gonna play out and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and I'm doing this for a reason so that I would display through him that I get to determine when you have a window of opportunity and I determine when I shut the door. Don't let that one blow by you. Don't think, oh, I can be saved whenever. There comes a point where he decides your opportunity is up and none of us know when that is. I'm gonna keep preaching to everybody like you still have an opportunity because I'm not God and I don't know where you stand. But listen, the Bible says he determines when he shuts the door. I'll harden hearts whenever I want. And if you've had opportunity, don't think that tomorrow you'll try, you'll, you'll think about it tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. You don't know you have tomorrow. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 37 through 40. Verse 37 of John 12. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It was their choice. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, listen, he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's Isaiah 53. It was shown. They had enough light to respond. Therefore, because they wouldn't believe, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Listen to what it says. There's an opportunity. You have your eyes opened, but once you've had your eyes opened, God determines when that opportunity is over. Now, some of us, he chased us for years. And for those of you that he chased you for years, you better say, thank you, 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 because he didn't have to. And as we've already touched on, some people get more light than others, and that's his plan. Well, I don't think that's fair. That's where the next section of verses come. Who are you? Who are you to say to the potter, why have you done this? Did anybody else have a say whether we'd be born? Isn't that interesting? None of us had a say whether or not we'd come into this world, and as soon as we show up, we want to be in charge. It's been God's plan for thousands of years and working for thousands of years and doing fine without us. But the moment we come on the scene, we tell mama when we want to eat and when we want to poop and when we, we, we want to be in charge from day one. And if mama doesn't feed us when we say we want to be fed, what do we do? We start throwing a fit. And that's been us all along. It's in us. It's that sin nature that's been passed on to us from Adam and Eve. God gets to do this however he wants. By the way, in Romans 9... It doesn't say that he's predetermined some people to be destroyed to show his wrath and some people to be saved to show his glory. Listen to what it says. What if he did? Real faith says even if he did choose ahead of time some to go to heaven and some to go to hell, it's still he's God. This is his plan. That's the attitude he's looking for from us. As I teach on this around the country, a lot of times I'll go to places and speak. And if I'm there for a week, they'll say, you seem to know a lot of the Bible. Could you do a question and answer night? And inevitably, this is going to be the topic of one of the questions. And I always tell them, and we'll talk about this next week, before I get started, everybody needs to uncross their arms. Because whenever you teach on this subject, people really don't want to hear. They don't want to learn. They just want to decide to see on my side of the aisle or the other people's side of the aisle. And I say to everybody, uncross your arms, because some of you are sitting here saying, I'll never believe in a God that's predetermined some people for heaven and some people for hell. Well, you need to uncross your arms, because the Bible says he gets to do it however he wants, and what if he did? Yes, others would say, well, I won't believe in a God that if man has a choice, he's not sovereign. I have to believe in a God that doesn't give man a choice or he loses his sovereignty. Uncross your arms. I'm going to show you how God's so sovereign, you still have a choice. And he can control that. Again, if you totally understand this, at the end of the next two weeks, I have failed. As we close tonight, I'm not going to read it to you, but in Romans 9, 19 through 33, it says he didn't have to save or forgive us at all. It's his mercy. It's his mercy. Did God have to have a plan in which he would send his own son to die for us? No. No but it's his mercy, it's his grace. The Gentiles received salvation and became a part of God's plan for Israel because they received it by faith, which was God's plan for Israel all along. They missed it. Well, some of them, most of them. But by the way, does this mean that no Gentile could be saved? Until after the Jews rejected him and now he said, oh, if you go back and read your Bibles, there were always Gentiles who believed more than the Jews. We've heard of what he did through you and how you defeated this king and that king and we're scared to death. We believe, I'm sorry, go ahead. Abraham was a Gentile, Abraham was a Gentile as well. We believe in your God more than you do because of the things we've heard and seen that he's done. Folks, let me just say this to you. God's election is that he has predetermined who will be saved. Wait a minute, Jim. You just, you just contradicted everything you've been saying. No, listen closely. He's predetermined who will be saved. Everyone who by faith comes to Jesus Christ. That's his plan. That's election. He's chosen ahead of time who But the who is determined by the how. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want to get you confused. When we talk about him predetermining who, it's been determined by the how through Jesus Christ. And if you respond in faith, you're part of the who. All right? Way more next week. You say, you're kidding me. No, next week, we're going to take a look at scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that deal with this topic. And we're going to look at it from so many different angles that hopefully they will have a little bit more light to understand it a little bit more, but hopefully cause us to worship even more. I love you guys. Thanks for coming.